Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of the Here's the Thing Though podcast. My name is Saliha and I'm your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Hello. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hey Mitch, how's it going? How are you? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. I mean, I had COVID last week, which is oh, why no. we had some dramas with getting our podcast episode up. But at least you guys will now get an episode a week for this week and last week. Yes, Two consecutive exactly. episodes. So, silver lining. And I am like mostly recovered now. I'm just still hacking up large globs of phlegm. <laughs> mm. It's not fun. You'll probably hear me cough throughout this uh, episode, but that's okay. Aside from that, I feel all right. I will say, like, I am surprised by how fatigued I still feel. Yes. Everyone keeps telling me, like, you know, don't worry, there's going to be residual symptoms. But also, like, I think we all kind of forgot that a year ago, people had two weeks to isolate and mm. get better from COVID. And now we only have five days. So when I hit day five and I still feel like shit, I'm like, wow, am I being dramatic? Is it me? Am I the drama? Like, am I just really sick and everybody else magically gets better on day five? And it's like, no, we actually just lessened the isolation period to get workers back to work. But actually, this disease is still kind of shit. I totally forgot about the 14-day yeah. isolation. It just seems... I mean, now there's like no isolation, and then it was really. 10, and then it was 5, and now it's not even legally... Yeah, it's all self-imposed at Yeah, exactly. I was talking to my friend who also has COVID. In fact, it's a kind of a miracle that I didn't get COVID again, because I saw you... Yeah, me, Mitch, and a friend were out. Me and the friend got COVID, and yeah. he didn't. <laughs> and I saw you, and then I saw my friend, and both of you then had COVID, and I somehow did not get it so i'm lucky for that it was my first time as well i, know, I that's can't believe pretty... I, got, I can't believe i got this far and then i got it i was devastated i thought I you really... were gonna be one of those people that yeah. just like was kind of immune i really developed a bit of a god complex for a while and then <laughs> You've been like humbled. yeah god humbled me <laughs> but just speaking of these isolation periods i was talking to my friend who has uh currently has covid and is also immunocompromised which apparently I didn't expect this, but it kind of makes sense. The symptoms are less severe for him. For him, However, he has COVID for a longer period of time. So the recommendation from the CDC is that he isolates for 20 days. Wow. Because he's immunocompromised, which is... So he's infectious for a much longer perhaps, period. Yeah, yeah. He, he suspects... He's getting better and suspects it may be overkill. But like from, you know, we were 14 days to 20 days from immunocompromised people. And now it's literally... Just do whatever. Yeah, do whatever you want. Like, if you're sick and you still feel, like, not that sick, come to work. Infect yeah. everyone. It's fine. Just put we on have- a mask if you can be bothered. Like, yeah. you don't have to, though. It's shocking how many people aren't wearing masks on public transport, considering that we're in, like, the fourth wave. Like, nobody's worried Oh, anymore. yeah, it's really, really bad. But, I mean, but yeah, we have so- lots of episodes on the mess of the past three yeah, years. Yeah, I was going to say, if so- anyone wants our thoughts on COVID, I'm sure we've got, like, 10,000 episodes on it. Yeah, we're all tired, and it's not just... The residual symptoms of COVID. Yeah, we're just tired. We're yeah. just tired. But on that note, let's move into... I was going to say follow-up, but I actually don't think we have any follow-up. I don't think so. No. Not really. All right, well, in that case, let's do recommendations. Sweet. I have a recommendation. Mm-hmm. We watched Glass Onion, which is the Knives Out sequel 
earlier this week, last week by the time you listen to this, and it was really good. I really enjoyed it. I think it's always fun when you watch a sequel and it's kind of like you get exactly what you want out of it. Yes, like it has yes. the same feel, the magic is kind of the same. Yeah, I feel like I got what I wanted out of Glass Onion. It was really fun. I was not predicting, you know, what was happening, which is good. I'm a serial predictor as well. Like mm-hmm. I am very annoying. Your intuition to is watch. on point. Yeah, it is. I always, I always get the ending. I'm very rarely blindsided. Was I completely blindsided in this? No, I did kind of somewhat predict it, but also like way less than I usually would. So it was a fun mm. ride for me. And it's more of the same. I mean, yeah, it's Knives just, Out. I just loved Knives Out and I feel like fantastic. I got what I wanted out of the sequel for what I loved Knives Out for. And that's maybe for me the only issue. And so like it's a non-issue really of the film is that it can't really recapture the magic of Knives Out because that was such a wonderful film because it was like a classic whodunit but with a twist it surprised us in ways that we didn't expect to be surprised like of course you come to these movies because you want an unpredictable story and you want there to be twists and turns but the original movie managed to surprise us in like a way that we didn't expect to be surprised like completely kind of turned the whole structure on its head and this film does the same thing but we're no longer surprised by its surprising nature see i would it's unpredictability is predictable you know what yeah I mean? yes it's still really I, good but i disagree that it doesn't have the same magic as the first one i think mm. it does i think i was like despite going in expecting to be surprised i was still surprised and i think that's a win for the movie yes and probably the only other thing i wanted to say about it is like i also really enjoyed a lot of its politics i don't think it was as political as knives out but i th- I know you disagree. I don't know. Yeah. I think some of its characterizations were weaker and I think maybe that made its politics a bit weaker. But I still there was like a scene at the end, which I'm obviously not gonna spoil, that was really good politically. Like I enjoyed the politics of a specific scene at the end of the movie and I was like, Yes, you get it. Like we're on the same page. I get this. I know exactly what you're trying to say right now, which is nice. Yes. The way I saw it, because I didn't like the politics as much as the first not that I disagreed with them, but in the first film it was this kind of classic who done it? But then the really incisive and kind of conscious political elements gave the film a really refreshing texture because it was a mm. great who done it. But then it was almost made extremely contemporary and it was really grounded in its spoken yeah. issues, like the main character being uh, an undocumented immigrant. Yeah, the family being undocumented, and that becomes like a tension within the film. But it's on. It's in the periphery, but in a way that it gives almost new meaning to the yeah. events happening within the film. Exactly. It's not that I liked it because it wasn't. In, in the limelight, but it almost kind of leaked into the limelight in a really yeah, interesting Yeah, well, it way. was just done in a really clever and modern way. Whereas in this film, it like it wears its politics. It's very on, on its the sleeve. nose at it's times. It's like the politics is the film and the social commentary yeah, is Yeah, which is why film. I didn't like it as much. It was kind of yeah. trying a little bit too hard, a little bit too on the nose. Very The first much. movie was beautiful because of the way it was weaving its politics into the story. Yeah, this doesn't... This one doesn't weave the politics into the story. It's a little bit different. It's not elegant in the same way. Yeah, it's not as elegant, but it's still really good and really fun. And it'll so be on Netflix soon, so check watch it out. It. Did you have a recommendation? I did. I wanted to... I had two recommendations. Mm -hmm. One is something that I've already mentioned on a previous episode and will kind of be the centerpiece, I feel like, for this episode, which is Lee Edelman's No Future, Queer Theory and the Death Drive. This is your official recommendation and why I want to recommend it, we'll get to very soon. And the second book I want to recommend is just something that I finished yesterday, which was a fantastic book called uh, A Hacker Manifesto. I think it was written almost 20 years ago by, I believe, an Australian academic. Mackenzie Walk. That book is just so much 
up my alley is about uh, digital capitalism. I really thought you were going to say up my ass for a second. (laughs) 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 Sorry, go on. But yeah, like digital capitalism, post-fortis capitalism, and it kind of is almost, I mean, it's a manifesto. So it's really a polemic against the current orders of capitalism, the way information and copyright and what she calls like the vectors of information has become prominent in our economy. Anyways, that's just, uh, I'll write more about that later. So stay tuned. But yeah, shall we? Yeah, let's get into today's topic. Today, we are going to talk about reproductive futurism, which Mm, I feel- Today's buzzword. I feel like it sounds more intimidating of a concept than it is. It's actually like surprisingly simple. Like we'll get there in complicated means, but it is simple. And reproductive futurism is something we've wanted to do an episode on for like months now because it's really like the core of politics of just politics so yeah let's get into it we want to start this episode off with a discussion on abortion and roe v wade because i think that's really what has brought conversations of reproductive futurism to the forefront of like society right now like this is the issue right now So Roe v. Wade, a.k.a. the constitutional right to an abortion in the U.S., was overturned by the Supreme Court in June this year. And by August, more than one third of U.S. women aged between 15 and 44 years old had lost nearly all access to elective abortions in their home state, per the Washington Post, because of these trigger laws that came into effect once abortion was no longer a protected human right. Since then, abortion has been a very hot topic everywhere, as you can even see in our last episode Mm. in our Love is Blind section, when we discussed that abortion was actually raised on the third season of the reality show, because this is the issue right now, especially in the US. I don't think so much in Australia. I think in Australia, it's trans rights. Like, that's the culture war happening right now. Mm -hmm. But in the US, it's that and also abortion rights. But because this is an ongoing conversation... I think it's really bringing to the forefront a lot of other issues. And like just like the way we even talk about abortion, I think it's up for interrogation because with the abortion issue comes issues of like, you know, women's sexuality, mm-hmm. the rights of the child, just misogyny in general. Yes, this was one of those issues that, and this like story, which was really in the news cycle in Australia, but you know, especially in the US for well, quite a It was surprising how much Australian media covered mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade, considering Australian media doesn't really yeah. cover American issues very often at all. Exactly. And this happened during our hiatus, which is like kind of part of the reason, like this topic that I really wanted to get back into the podcast, because yes, an American issue, but really resonated with the media here, but also like protests here, you know, like because in America, it seemed that abortion was won. People had won their hard earned right to abortion in the US. Like they had already done those protests in the early waves of feminism. And then we regress. Because it's kind of assumed that once it becomes constitutional, it becomes an inalienable right. It's like unalterable. So the fact that this was overturned, which even I was like slightly skeptical that it would actually be overturned. See, um, I actually wasn't, not. and you know why? Why? Because this is the problem with democratic socialism, yeah, right? right? This is why we're radical. This is why we're, like, anti-state and why we believe in, like, revolutionary politics. Because the problem with the way that democracy functions right now, anything that is brought into law can be brought out of law, which mm. can be good for bad laws, 
But it's also bad when you have really progressive, hard-won laws that you bring in to, like, parliament and then the moment we have a new leader, all of that can just be undone. And we saw that with, like, Obamacare Mm -hmm. and free healthcare and, like, there were so many kind of progressive changes that Obama made as president of America and then Trump just undid them all. So it's like, what's... What's the point? What's the point? What's, so the, what's fucking, the fight for? Yeah, right. I fucking knew it. With, with Roe v. Wade, the moment it became an issue, I was like, of course they'll undo it because this is how democratic socialism functions. This is why I'm critical yeah. of democratic I socialism. Was just, I was just naive, clearly. And yeah, but like it fascinated me so much because it was also a point earlier this year where all of these, like you said, these political issues were coalescing. It was a discussion of women's autonomy. It was a discussion on the place of the child in society. It also became, interestingly- a place where we were starting to question like, oh, what does it mean to be a woman? Because a whole discourse about like, oh, is this a women's issue? Because like people who aren't women are able to reproduce. So we should call it, what what was it? A like a reproduction issue? Yeah, so it was just like, that's why the shift from like women's health to reproductive health. Yes, right. Because that's like, wasn't More inclusive inclusive of a term. But then there was also debates around that because the whole reason Mm. that abortion is an issue is because- it has an association with women, like in the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, exactly. So I, then other I people would argue, early. which I probably would as well, that abortion affects everybody, whether or not you have a uterus, regardless of your gender identity. But I would probably class it in an umbrella of women's issues because the only reason abortion is an issue is because it has an association with women who yeah. are an underclass in a patriarchal society. Precisely. And another reason I found the debate surrounding Roe v. Wade and then the consequences of its overturning so interesting is because just before this happened, I had read the book I just mentioned previously, No Future by Lee Edelman, which introduces this idea of reproductive futurism, which kind of completely changed the way I interacted with the discourses surrounding like reproduction and abortion and the fight for the child and the fight for abortion and what it means to be pro-life and pro-choice and et cetera, et cetera. So reproductive futurism is today's buzzword. This is like, you learn this, deploy it in a conversation and like you'll get plus 10 <laughs> intellect. This is, if you get nothing from today's episode, just get this idea of reproductive futurism coined by Lee Edelman. It's a term that can be as simple or as complex as you really want it to be. So we'll start with kind of what we get from this idea of reproductive futurism. Specifically, reproductive futurism names the dominant political order in which all of politics, both left and right wing, becomes a politics of the future. All politics is about some future society, which does not exist yet, essentially. And specifically, because of this, it becomes a politics centered on the child. I feel like most of this episode, we say the child, we're almost referring to like a child with a capital C, like this figurative child. child, the idea of the child, yes, the symbolic child. And thus, because of this, all politics then becomes framed as a fight for the next generation. For the child. For the child. It's about making the world better for future children, for children that don't exist yet. It's like, and this is the way I kind of make sense of this, and I think of this every time I'm at work and this song comes on. It's precisely like this Taylor Swift song, which I know you hadn't heard before. But uh, look, I'm not the biggest Swifty. I know the Swiftie. hits. I know the hits. I like Taylor Swift, but she has this song called Only the Young, which comes on at my work like all the fucking time. And it kind of, I'm not a big fan of it. But the chorus and pre-chorus of the song is like this, and I'm not going to sing this. So don't worry. <laughs> You're just going to read it. <laughs> yeah. And I won't rap it either. I'll, I'll, try, I'll be monotone. Quote, they aren't going to help us. 
too busy helping themselves. They aren't going to change this. We got to do it ourselves. They think that it's over, but it's just begun. Only one thing can save us. Only the young. Only the young. Only the young can run. Can run. So run and run and run. I didn't realize this was going to be a dramatic it, it reading. Came, it became kind of dramatic. <laughs> I feel like I was doing some Shakespeare in, like when you're in high school. And Just a bit of slam poetry. Yeah, exactly. But this song, at least to me, is the perfect example of reproductive futurism. Like, it literally suggests that change, political change, can only happen through children. And kind of most pervasively, and we'll return to this idea, it implies like the necessity of a heteronormative order. If politics is always about the child and it's about both the fight for the children, but then also this idea that change that, is enacted yeah, through children, children are the, the locus of power and of change, then politics demands that society be ordered in such a way to continually produce children and produce families. Yes. Also, do you think Taylor Swift would be shocked if she heard us use her song in this context? I don't know. She's like, like, you know those memes with like English teachers being like, oh, the curtain is blue, it refers to this, and the students are all like, the author didn't intend that. I feel like that's a really us for Taylor Swift right now. No way. <laughs> She's literally saying only the young can run. Like, but do you think she understands reproductive futurism? No, but like you don't have to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, I know. It's the dominant. I know. I, 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 know. I agree you with agree you. with me. Okay. All right, go on. All right. But yeah, so this is kind of Edelman's project, right? This book is about queer theory and he's critiquing the dominance of the future. Like he calls it futurity, you know, the, the notion of the future. And he suggests that all of politics is centered on the future. It's like conservatives, you know, it's in their name. They want to conserve. They want to protect the world as it currently is and continue their fight in the face of the child, you know, like everything becomes justifiable in order to protect the innocent child. The yeah, child, the pure like we child. can't introduce these perverse new ways of living because yeah. what about the children? Exactly. What about my child and my child's right to innocence and purity? And the left, even though, you know, the left is kind of anti-conservative, in a way, the left is always about the child. It's always about the future. Yeah, well, we want to make the world a better place yes. for the next generation. Like I'm thinking of, you know, like the, the workers or the strike grants, like a, like a better world is possible. Another world is possible. We need to create a better world for the child. But as long as the child is always the benefactor of our political movements, it's always going to be somehow conservative because yeah. we always want to conserve the privileging of the child. So- it, for Edelman, and like, I think we can problematize this, but I think broadly, Edelman is correct in saying that all of politics is about the future and it's never about the present. And we, I feel like we run into this tension with like radical politics sometimes. It's like, yes. oh, you can't do this now because then people aren't going to be on your side and we're trying to build a better future. But yes, what does it mean to build defer, a better present? We defer like yes. action it's to the future. It's deferral. But it's like if, yeah, I think what you said about the child being the benefactor of change, a symbolic child that doesn't exist, is really fascinating because that often can lead to marginalized people losing their rights in the now. Yes. Like marginalized people must sacrifice their rights in the now for the sake of a child in the future that doesn't exist. And that can become very problematic very quickly. It's again why fascism, you know, if you want to look at Nazi propaganda, it's always images of the young Aryan, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed child. Yeah, a little cherub faced, innocent little an yeah. angel baby. And it's a child that never ages because it's a symbolic child. The fight is never complete because the child is always young. Yeah. The idea of the child is always young. Yeah, well, and there will always, like, the child will, there was always a future of gonna, Yeah, there's always more people, to do. Yeah, there's always more to do and there's always going to be children. There's children are always going to exist. 
So to bring this back to the abortion debate and why this was like on my mind so much during the controversies and the debates surrounding Roe v. Wade, we see this idea of reproductive futurism on both sides of the abortion debate, both like kind of quote progressive and quote conservative. We can easily see why like abortion is a hot button issue for conservatives. Not only does it police women's behavior, which conservatives for them, like, goals. that's their dream. <laughs> like, that's what, you know, sustains them. But if conservatism is a, quote, fight for the children, an endless battle against what they see as, like, perversity targeting the child and targeting their family values, then for conservatives, abortion is literally the death of the future. If children are the future and we suddenly we're, decide we're that it's okay children. to kill children- then we're killing the future. Yes. is literally the end of the society that they want to conserve. Mm. That, I always think about that. Like, oh, conservatism is conservatism. They're is literally, literally conserving, conserving right. old notions, anti-progressive notions of the world. Now, I find that really interesting because even like the term pro-life mm. should actually be pro-child, like really. Yes. Because- I feel like this comes back to what I said about the issue with reproductive futurism or the Mm -hmm. privileging of the future child over the person now is exactly what we're seeing. It's like perfectly demonstrated in our current abortion debates because pro-lifers would rather privilege a child that doesn't exist over Mm -hmm. a woman who Mm -hmm. does exist or a person who does exist and is pregnant or could be pregnant with that child so for example when they discuss all the different scenarios of all the different types of abortions or reasons for abortion that can Mm -hmm. exist and one that comes up a lot is like a woman is pregnant but she could die if she has this child or having this child could be traumatic to her maybe she was like sexually assaulted and that's how the baby was conceived and then pro-lifers would argue that like those circumstances don't matter and that the child should still be born at the expense of the mother, right? Yes. And it's like so interesting because if you were pro-life, you'd be concerned about that mother's welfare too because mm-hmm. she's a person who actually exists in this world, who has people that love her, who has aspirations and dreams as well mm-hmm. and wants to exist without the trauma of this baby. But like pro-life isn't pro-life. It's pro-child, but not even real children. It's pro the child. It's yes. pro the concept of the child because like, you know, with pro-lifers, they don't actually do anything to look after children that do exist in this world. It's not like they're all out there foster caring orphans, like, yes, no, exactly or like right. funneling government money into like supporting underprivileged children. Pro-life isn't about any life. It's about the child. Exactly. And this is the irony, which leftists always want to point out. This mm. becomes like the battle cry. And so obviously we can see how conservatives are so like caught up with this notion of reproductive futurism, how that kind of defines the ideal political order. However, Edelman in this book correctly notices how the left, you know, the pro-choice side, the side we typically see as opposing the right, is strangely aligned with the right. So arguments for abortion often similarly takes on a fight for the child, however, in a different way. In fact, the mainstream left wants to claim, exactly like you were saying, that they are fighting for the child better than the right. Mm, the right says yeah. they're fighting for the child, but then the left wants to say, no, actually, like, we're also fighting for the child and we're doing it better. Yeah, because we care about children that actually exist. So when you argue pro-choice, you say, think about the children that will be born into families who aren't yet ready to care for them, you know? 
Yeah, think, think about, about the trauma for that child. Yes, exactly. Think about the future of those hopeless children, you know. They're born into a family and then they won't be able to seize their potential. Think about the young teenage girls whose future will be ruined if they become pregnant. Again, like the future. And if they can't and, afford- And those teenage girls in this scenario are the child as well because they're yes. children. And we're like, well, think about children think, that get pregnant. Think about their potential. Think, think about, about their future. Think about children that may get pregnant and how that'll ruin their future. So in a way, like both sides are conservative insofar as they are both fighting for the child, affirming a political order that privileges the future over the present. Because we never talk about the present. We always talk about what could be. Everything is always deferred in potentials. And like, this is something that I've found myself doing all the time. Like I want to do the same thing when if someone's pro-life, I want to say, well, in a way I'm pro-life, but better than you are. Yeah, because I'm pro-life for the right people. Yes, exactly. And this became so apparent to me, this discourse and how, like, in a way they're they're the same. Of course, like... They're not the same. But as in they both have interesting similarities in the way they defer to the future. Yeah, exactly. I saw this in Michelle Obama's, like, multiple Instagram posts regarding Roe v. Wade, which I saw it and you see exactly what I'm talking about. One of the posts was during the debates before it was, like, actually overturned when it seemed to be a looming threat. And I'll just quote like one of the paragraphs from an earlier post from Michelle Obama, where she says, we have to double down, get even more organized and join the activists who've been doing this work away from the spotlight for so long. And we've got to do this not just for ourselves, but for the next generation. That was before it was overturned. And then after it was overturned, Obama says, quote, so yes, I am heartbroken for the teenage girl full of zest and promise who won't be able to finish school or live the life she wants because her state controls her reproductive decisions. For the mother of a non-viable pregnancy who is now forced to bring that pregnancy to term. For the parents watching their child's future evaporate before their very eyes. For the healthcare workers who can no longer help them without risking jail time. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's still about the next generation, the future, the hypothetical. And I also think it's always interesting that these comments, even in kind of liberal left spaces are still always about people who like whose lives will be ruined by a pregnancy. They tend to not mm-hmm. include somebody who just doesn't want to get pregnant. Yeah. Will it ruin their life? Maybe not. What about people who have the means to raise a child? It won't ruin it and they just don't want one. Like yeah. they're often like missing from these conversations because it has to kind of center around child and trauma and children. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Right. No, you're you're completely right. It's always assumed that the person receiving an abortion and this is what makes it moral deep down, like, wants to proliferate and wants to engage in this political order of the child. But it's that they can't. And that's the tragedy. Yeah. You know, like... It's like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to hurt kids. But, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, well, this is still actually kind of pandering to some conservative values because actually just anybody should be able to make their own reproductive health choices anytime they want, regardless of, like, what the circumstances are. There's this quote from Edelman's book where he says... You know, like you were saying, pro-life is actually pro-child. However, pro-choice is never like pro-abortion. It's always like pro-choice because who on earth wants to say they're pro-abortion? He says, quote, who would, after all, come out for abortion or stand against reproduction, against futurity and against life? That just seems like an impossibility. That just literally seems unthinkable. Yeah, people would think you're like an evil child killer. And that's precisely what Edelman's critique of this notion of reproductive futurism is about. Throughout the book, he's essentially asking, what would it mean to not be fighting for the child? If both left and right wing politics is in some way about the future and in some way about the child, what would it mean to be on the opposite side? 
not against the child, but not for the child. Yeah. What if our politics didn't center around the future, but around the now? So to move this conversation away from strictly abortion and towards this larger project of understanding reproductive futurism, this very pervasive order as a whole, Lee Edelman is interested in the way queerness relates to this idea of reproductive futurism or how reproductive futurism is a way in which queerness is policed and the way in which heteronormativity is enforced. Because he wants to say this, if politics, both left and right wing, is always about a fight for the children. It's always about the future in some capacity. It's always about the figurative child. And about reproduction. And thus about reproduction. Then what does that mean for people who either don't want to reproduce or cannot reproduce? And this is where perhaps like the book's age kind of shows itself. It came out in 2004. And obviously the people he's interested in, which is like same-sex relationships or, or queer people or gay people, like can reproduce, like they can engage in this kind of large political order he kind of assumes wholesale that they can't which i think is a bit problematic yeah but, but he's just like i think you're right that's just a bit of an old school yeah. take because also like it was a lot harder for same-sex couples exactly to have access to like creating a family than it is now yes exactly so i can like see that i'm like yeah like now we wouldn't use such sweeping language but no. i can see why he did but because of this inability of lack of desire to have kids and thus participate in reproductive futurism they become excluded and then they're also seen as a threat to the order yes. as a whole. That's important. Yes. Not so, only are they excluded, but they are seen as problematic. Yes. And I think that is really interesting because we already kind of know that in much simpler terms, even mm-hmm. without reading this book, is we know that the reason homophobic and transphobic conservatives are so offended by queer relationships is because they threaten the heteronormative social order that allows the current society to function, which Mm -hmm. this book would say is like, yeah, like queer relationships threaten reproductive futurism because they aren't this heteronormative nuclear family that is all about the child. Yes, like throughout the book, Edelman is referring to a lot of like conservative discourse, like people coming from like parent associations and like older discourse on like homosexuality. And he notes how gay people are seen, I mean, this is so problematic, but they're seen as like the grave diggers of society because they take from society, but they don't give back. Because the only way- Because of Oh my God. Because the only way you can participate is through the reproductive labor. That's so fucked. But yeah, that is totally how conservatives treat queer people. And I really believe that that is why they are so offended by like non-hetero or cis-normative relationships. Because to them, it's like, uh, how dare you exist in our society that is based on reproductive futurism and then not actively participate in it and further it like we are. Exactly. Right. And so he quotes Donald Wildman. Who cares? But he is, or at least was, the founder and head of the Homophobic American Family Association. I mean, like, you can already tell from that name. Yeah, you just, anything with the word family in it is typically, like, very homophobic. And this is the kind of horrible quote that uh, Edelman points to from Wildman, who says, quote, Acceptance or indifference to the homosexual movement will result in society's destruction by allowing civil order to be redefined and by plummeting ourselves, our children, and grandchildren into an age of godlessness. Indeed, the very foundation of Western civilization is at stake. Unquote. 
I mean, Western civilization must be really weak if, like, a gay yeah. person threatens the entire social order of the world. Mm-hmm. But something I want to point out that is really interesting is, like, earlier we mentioned that there was tensions in the abortion discourse yeah. between, like, cis women feminists and then people who have uteruses who don't identify as women. Mm-hmm. And there was this tension where it was, like, you are excluding us from this discussion of abortion when it affects us too. And it's, like, yeah, we really need to understand that, like, even now how easily we've moved from the conversation of abortion to like queer phobia because actually Mm -hmm. like all of this at the center of all of these issues is reproductive futurism and there actually does need to be strong solidarity between like abortion activists and queer activists because we're actually all impacted by the same issue which is reproductive futurism they're all deeply connected exactly and in response to that horrible quote Edelman says, you know, while it may be our instinct to do the liberal thing and say, no, not at all. Like, that's fucked. We should include queerness. We shouldn't police queerness. Like, this is obviously a horrible thing to say. Edelman says, quote, dare we pause for a moment to acknowledge that Mr. Wildman might be right, or more importantly, that he ought to be right, that queerness should and must redefine notions as, quote, civil order, unquote, through a rupturing of our foundational faith in the reproduction of futurity. Yeah, so he's essentially saying, okay, and what if queer people actually were a threat to heteronormative society? Yes, yes, like yes, he's yes. like, you know, this guy is saying gay people are bad because they threaten heteronormative society. And he's like, well, actually, yeah, that's kind of what we want to do. Like, right. maybe we should threaten heteronormative society and maybe the conservatives are right to fear us for doing that because we actually fuck heteronormative society. Yes. Which is like, yeah, true. Like, a lot of conservative talking points condemn queer relationships because of the way they threaten the current order of society or what society privileges, which is, you know, the child. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, fuck that. Yeah, Like, right. what about we just don't care about the family like fuck the family right That's like the thing. is that what he's is that is what edelman is saying essentially edelman is saying conservatives believe that queerness is not compatible with the current social fabric and thus poses a threat to the current social order and liberals would say no no no, no. queerness is we compatible. should include them they can assimilate like well we- it's the idea that queerness is compatible yeah. with the current society and then he would say as a radical the no conservatives it isn't are right. and that's good yes the conservatives are correct queerness will way. fundamentally destroy the social fabric of society and but the social fabric thing. is intolerable it's utterly fucked yeah like it's a good thing that queerness is threatening this social fabric because we don't want it because it was built by conservatives like fuck it mm. <laughs> which like yeah true so I feel like, I mean, I wouldn't frame it as like the conservatives are right, but it's more like they recognize like we actually, the threat of Yeah, queerness. exactly. They it's rec- radical potential. They recognize the radical potential yes. of queerness. Yes, yes. I would put it it's like It's always that. difficult to kind of discuss these things and navigate these waters. Yeah, because the language is complicated yeah. and it's like you don't want to sound like you're saying I'm a conservative because no. you're not, but you're saying the fear that conservatives have of queerness is actually like a sign that queer people are doing something right, essentially. And I think if we like kind of move on to examples of this fear and what we're talking about, a really interesting one just recently in the last couple of weeks was something that happened to Courtney Act, who, for those of you who don't know, is a very famous Australian drag queen slash singer slash media personality. I love Courtney Act. She is iconic. But in November this year, Liberal Senator Alex Antic, which like imagine your last name being Antic, this is so fitting, (laughs) threw a tantrum in Parliament after Courtney Act read a book to children on ABC's Play School. So the book that she read is about a little girl who wants to wear pants to her birthday party instead of a dress, 
which, you know, doesn't seem like a big deal, but apparently was a concept so alien to Senator Antic that he then accused Courtney Act of encouraging gender dysphoria and grooming children on play school. And so he said, quote, cross-dressing, let me ask you this. Does ABC agree that transgender or cross-dressing are adult concepts? End quote. He then accused the ABC and Courtney of, you know, like grooming Aussie kids, which is, by the way, also a really cowardly yes. move. Because he said that in Parliament, he can't actually be sued for defamation as well, which is just like so uh. fucking coward. If he had like tweeted that, he could have been sued, but he said it in Parliament and now he can't be sued. Which is some fucking mm. bullshit. Before I get into some of the politics of this and how it's relevant to reproductive futurism, I do want to read out Courtney Act's response on the project because I think it was really great and I think Courtney Act deserves the platform to be able to defend herself. So she said on the project after she was fucking accused of grooming children, which is like such an abhorrent accusation to make and it is wow that you can just say that shit and not be sued for defamation. But anyway, Courtney Act said, quote, I was really taken aback that I would be accused of such a thing because grooming is really serious. Like, grooming is the act of an abuser manipulating a child so that they can sexually abuse them. It's a really serious thing. And to use terms of abuse when no abuse is actually happening really takes away from occasions when it is happening. And you know, I'm on television reading a children's book. There was nothing untoward about it. We have all agreed women can wear pants. It felt a very peculiar thing for him to zoom in on. I think it was probably more to do with the fact that it was me reading the book. I think the reason that is, and the reason the term grooming was used, is because somebody like Senator Antic might see my identity as sexualized, and there's this idea that who I am is inherently sexual. And I think the reason behind that is, the thing that makes me different from him is my sex life, who I have sex with, because I'm a male person who's attracted to men. Obviously, I'm much more than just that, and I think that him viewing me as inherently sexual is probably the place where we get a bit off track, because... I mean, you know, all sorts of performers, like he's married with a kid, so he's obviously had sex at some point in his life, but obviously we know what's appropriate in different circumstances. In that circumstance, I think what I was doing was completely appropriate. Kids just see color and sparkles and fun. They are not sexualizing me. That is something the adults do, end quote. Okay, so this thing happening, I don't even know what to call it because I don't want to legitimize like Senator Antic's fucking claims because he just pulled that shit out of his ass and then Courtney had to defend herself against like completely baseless accusations. But like what he said about Courtney Act being dressed as a drag queen and reading to children being inherently like an adult thing, like that transness and cross-dressing quote-unquote, are adult concepts. They are not for the children, and Mm -hmm. we need to protect our children from this drag queen who is introducing them to adult concepts like gender and sexuality. This moral panic about, like, queer people, and right now specifically drag queens, like, I think drag queens are specifically being linked to grooming at the moment as, like, another current culture war. This idea that queer people are grooming children is a pretty dangerous form of homophobia that's actually been around for, like, at least since the 70s. Back then, I was like just honestly just traversing. You know, like in a Wikipedia spiral. I was traversing Wikipedia and I found this article about how the Save Our Children, Save Our Children. Yes, it's always that. (laughs) It's always that, right? The Save Our Children Coalition weaponized terms like grooming, which obviously by definition refers to the process of adults making children vulnerable to sexual abuse through like compliments and other trust building tactics against gay people who this coalition claimed were trying to, quote, recruit the youth of America, unquote. Like, 
it, this is a really good example of reproductive futurism in action where, like, since the fucking 70s, like, organizations called, like, American Families or Save Our Children mm-hmm. have targeted queer people as, like, grooming the youth and, like, sexually abusing children. And that's why they're bad. Because yeah. we can't actually criticize these people for literally anything. So we're going to make up accusations about them grooming children. Because you know what everybody cares about? Children. Yes, because children are not sexual. They are yeah. the absence of sex. But it's also, like heteronormativity you know this ridiculous to say but heteronormativity isn't sexual whereas like queer people or gay yeah, people the idea are, that, are entirely sex yeah and it's so funny because heteronormativity is so fucking sexual it's so like, sexual all it does is sexualize women and children that is all heteronormativity does how many times have you been out and like somebody has like a one-year-old baby who's like reaching out for a woman and they're like oh you know he's gonna be a little player when he's older like you have sexualized this baby reaching for a woman like heteronormativity is so sexual all the time it's why we struggle so much to understand platonic relationships between men and women that aren't familial it's just fucked i mean i don't need to i feel like i'm preaching to the choir here but the point is this is reproductive futurism in action where like conservatives have used this image of this hypothetical fucking child that doesn't even exist that's apparently being groomed Mm -hmm. and like that's the politics that we're going to use to now like discredit queer people this just reminds me of one of my favorite memes from uh my favorite meme pages i think uh, inherent thembo is the name the meme is like a photo of a school classroom and has like a speech bubble pointing to the teacher uh, and she says you see since i'm married you must call me mrs this is my preferred way of being addressed and then the caption for that image is my preferred way of being addressed how about you keep your depraved breeding kink away from your children you sick pervert because it's true it's like <laughs> You know, we're not saying sex is bad, but heteronormativity is invisible sex because that's how normativity works. Yeah. And then something that isn't normative is non-normative is then seen as, oh, that's sex. Whereas you, because you become blind to the sex that is diffuse and pervasive. And yeah. Well, it's everywhere. the idea that actually sexuality and sex underpins everything to do with heterosexuality. But we only acknowledge sex as, like, this gross perverted thing that we shouldn't expose children to when it's queer sex. Yeah, but when we enforce heteronormativity upon children, we're teaching, we're sexing them in some way. Like, they become Mm -hmm. sexed, but we don't realize that. Another example of this, actually, is, like, family-friendly pride Mm -hmm. um, and this whole debate or discourse around kink at pride versus no kink at pride, which is this... Recent issue where some people think queer people should not be allowed to celebrate their kinks or wear like really sexual outfits at Pride because they want to take their children to Pride and they want it to be a quote unquote family friendly event. They want Pride to be family friendly. So these depraved queers better not be wearing their sexy outfits and their kinky outfits, which I just find like so ironic and hilarious because really like queer Pride was created in opposition to the family, right? Mm. Like, as we spoke earlier and as, like, all kinds of queer theory discusses, like, queer theory challenges and ultimately dismantles the notion of nuclear families and of families in general and of the child because all those concepts have been weaponized against queer people since the dawn of fucking time. Mm -hmm. So then this idea of wanting to turn pride, which is inherently a radical event, that was created to oppose heteronormativity and allow the self-expression of queer people into a family-friendly event is, like, so sinister. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know, it's, again, first it over-sexualizes gay people who just want to fucking express themselves. 
And it also makes the metaphoric child, or maybe in some case a real actual child, more important than the rights of queer people in that moment. Because you can just not take your small child to pride if you don't want to. Like, your small child is not more entitled to attending pride than, like, a gay person who this event is actually for. And I think all of this ties into, I mean, there's so many, like reproductive futurism comes up everywhere. I think that, that that's what this episode is about, is that once you see it, you can't unsee it because actually everything in politics somehow relates to a child. Yeah. Like as Mitch mentioned earlier, you see it a lot in like fascist politics. You know, we see the child constantly pop up in far right kind of Nazi politics. I'm sure you're all aware of QAnon theories about leftists and Democrats all being pedophiles and we have to get rid of the leftists in the world because they are a threat to our children who, you know, they're going to sexually assault. Mm. And then there's the same kind of accusations about all queer people being like pedophiles. The drag queens are trying to groom your children into like their little army. Like it's always about... Like children, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Nazis would use pictures of blonde, blue-eyed, innocent, cherub-faced children to rally hatred towards Jewish people who they claimed were a threat Mm -hmm. to white children. We also see this come up in white supremacy in relation to blackness and how you want to keep black men away from your family because they're going to sexually assault your wife and children. Yeah, and everything becomes justifiable in the name of the child. Yeah, anything is justifiable because anything is okay so long as it protects a child, right? We see the same thing even in like Australia with immigrant politics as well. Like it's okay to leave refugees out there suffering because what if they come here and assault our children? We can allow all kinds of heinous shit as long as, like, it's in the name of a child. We saw it when we had in Australia, like, fucked politics regarding African and Lebanese gangs who want to target and indoctrinate your children. Even just, like, in the fucking most recent episode we recorded, we, like, the police officers talking about immigrants and Muslims, like, outbreeding the whites mm. and they're, like, a threat to white children because they're outbreeding yes, us. Yes, right, because children are the future and now it's become a battle of whose children whose get to children be the future. get to be the future because yeah. we don't actually want children to be the future. We want, like, conservative white children to be the future and then you know as we've mentioned just now like this also comes up in like literally every homophobic argument you can think of even like in australia with the safe schools program like the backlash to the safe schools program was all about how like it's gonna turn our children gay because even if it did even if like the safe schools program made your children realize that they don't have to be forced into heteronormativity there are more options more ways and they could yeah why is that so scary the only reason that is scary to conservatives is because their gay kids may not then uphold heteronormativity and and reproduce like heteronormative children mm-hmm. like it is still about children the reason these conservatives don't want safe school programs to show their children that gayness is an option mm-hmm. is because then if they choose that option they'll abandon reproductive futurism right. we see that you know with same-sex marriage when the same-sex marriage debate was happening it was like a, we need to ban same-sex marriage because we don't want these couples to get married and then raise children in families that aren't nuclear because children need a nuclear family to be healthy and develop normally but what we're really saying when we say that is we have very scared of the idea of people being raised in a way that challenges heteronormativity and reproductive futurism. The same thing with like, you know, trans issues is really the culture war happening right now in Australia. And the reason that conservatives are so fucking threatened by trans people is because they complicate ideas of gender and heteronormativity. And for conservative people, it's like, no, trans people are going to like confuse our children and they're sexualizing kids by like talking about gender like this, Mm -hmm. even though all heteronormativity does is sexualize children as well. But yeah, like it's everywhere, right? Reproductive futurism is everywhere and it is at the root of a lot of homophobia and a lot of anti-abortion politics 
that privilege the child over the woman. Yes. Or even just the person. Yeah, just over society. The future over the present, really. The future over the present. But it's interesting because that doesn't necessarily mean reproductive futurism is always used in a way that is actively harmful. Mm-hmm. We all engage in reproductive futurism and a really good way to put that is like through arguments of climate change. Because climate change is an interesting one because the child really is at the centre of this debate of both the left and the right. With and liberal and radical. Like anywhere you sit on the political spectrum, the child is pretty integral to arguments about climate change because climate activists want to save the planet, not just because it deserves to be saved because it exists, but also because the world needs to remain a safe and habitable place for our children. And then conservative arguments that talk about climate change not existing often say that this climate activism is bad because it's making our kids depressed, making life hard for our children mm-hmm. who now like have fear and don't want... Like, it's still all about children, And I find that really interesting because there's nothing wrong with wanting to save the planet for children in this context, right? Because like that's also how I view it. I want to save the planet for myself, but also what if I want to have a kid one day? That's an issue that I experience. What if I want to have a child one day? I can't personally feel like I can ethically bring them into a dying world. Like it's still about children and reproduction. I suppose so. But there are already climate refugees. There are already people in the present experiencing already the impacts of climate change. And, and those people are often not discussed, I think, I in a lot of these arguments because it's still deferring to the future, even though climate yeah. change is not a future issue, it's a now issue. We, we could talk about those people, but it's only through mediating it through the child that it becomes even legible as a political topic. Yeah, we issue. can't simply talk about marginalized people who exist now. No, because that's, that, that's, po- that's not politics. Exactly. Right? And that's the same thing with abortion. Like, you know, even people who are like pro-choice we'll often forget women that exist now and we'll still talk about future women and future children. Because I think, like, with reproductive futurism, like, now that I see it, I can't unsee it, right? It's literally... It's a virus. It's literally everywhere and every single time you see politics, it'll somehow be related to a child. Like, it's like, you once you see it, you can't unsee it. And it's really kind of important to understand that because while, like I said, reproductive futurism, you know, can sometimes be a neutral concept like in climate change, we do need to be able to recognise when it's being weaponized by conservatives or like the child is being weaponized to destroy the rights of the marginalized right now, which we have seen with like reproductive rights, which we have seen with queer people. This hypothetical child is more important than the right to like a queer person expressing themselves or a woman getting an abortion or whatever. That is fucking problematic. And that's like quite a radical concept to like forget the future and think of the now. Like that is actually really radical and something that you know, like Lee Edelman is suggesting. Like that's what he is. That's his call to action. I just want to end this on a quote from Edelman's No Future, which is not only my favorite quote from this book, but maybe from any book. And also I see this passage come up all the time. Like I was just reading an interview the other day between like two academics and they even brought up this passage because it's just so, and it's just so amusing. And it's yeah. also just so uh, incisive and really articulates the issue. And again, I mean- just a warning if you do want to approach this book yourself. I feel like it is quite difficult. His language is not accessible. And also, he intertwines very academic language to almost these explosions of, of aggression and it's like of, of these polemics. It's almost like a manifesto in that one sense. But I think he describes his position and the radical potential of queerness kind of perfectly in this sentence. Quote, Fuck the social order and the child in whose name were collectively terrorized. Fuck Annie. Fuck the waif from Lemis. Fuck the poor, innocent kid on the net. Fuck laws both with capital L's and with small. 
fuck the whole network of symbolic relations and the future that serves as its prop, unquote. I mean, this is known as the the fuck Annie kind of passage because like, why uh, why are we against Annie? Because what does Annie sing? Tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you tomorrow. <laughs> Annie's, it's all about the future. It's, it's about, all about the deferring. kid. It's all about deferring to a future that will never come to pass because tomorrow is always tomorrow. All we have really is today. Yeah, and we should focus on politics that help people now as mm. well as the future. I'm not against helping people no, in the future. No, of course. I think, you of know, I do want to make like that disclaimer because like we're not saying politics are bad if they only care about the future because like with climate change for example it's necessary but what we're saying is we should really be critical at times when we see people make political arguments that actively marginalize people now for the sake of the hypothetical future yes that's not okay yes and we should be critical of that because that is literally the mindset that anti-abortion and anti-queer politics especially are hinged upon and we also hate like those anti-children folk that are just always talking about how much they hate kids and yeah, how fuck much those they people too. like we're like fuck them. But what we're against is this view that kids are outside of politics, but also the weaponization of the child to police abortion. And yes, police exactly. Queerness. It's about the weaponization of the child, often a child that doesn't exist. Because I could do a whole nother episode in defense of children, not the maybe, child. Maybe that, got to be, that has to be in the next episode, in defense of children. Yeah, in of defense of children, because I think children are a marginalized underclass oh, who yeah, have literally no doubt. rights. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, it's funny, like all children's rights often exist because in the Because they're just pawns in this yeah. adult game. Yeah, right. so I feel like we want to make that clear. We don't hate children. No, but the children are <laughs> the pawns children. of this larger And that's why order. we're talking about this issue, because I think a lot of our politics should really center on like a love for other people and like yeah. a love for your community and we love people now. That's why we want to say fuck you to politics that sacrifice them for the sake of a future that will never actually exist. That's what we would be critical of. Cool. Well, thank you for listening. I think now's a good time to talk about our lovely sponsors for the episode, which is you guys, our lovely, lovely listeners. And specifically, we'd like to thank Johnny and Pia as always. If you thought our discussion today was interesting, thought-provoking, or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio and also in our podcast description. So check them out over there or my Instagram at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mishes.miscellanea for discussions around film books and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or email us at herestothingthoughpodcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info if you do. Cool. Thanks. Bye. Bye.